0: Hey guys, this is Ben. And I'm Karen. All you do is read about crime. If you have serial killer posters in your bedroom. And if you're hiding newspaper article clippings under your bed. Looking at you, Karen. (laughs) Don't be concerned, guys. We share your compulsion. You can join us at CrimeAndCompulsion.com. Or wherever you get your podcasts. See ya. If your dreams don't scare you, they are too small. Richard Branson. Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers, to decades-old unsolved mysteries, These stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On today's episode, a killing at Christmas, the unsolved murder of a child beauty queen who became a household name, the media firestorm that kept her family in the spotlight for years to come, and the conspiracy theories ranging from downright strange to chillingly possible about what may have happened on that harrowing Christmas night 24 years ago. This is John Benet Ramsey. On Christmas night, 1996, Patsy Ramsey tucked her six-year-old daughter, John Benet, into bed. Together, they said their goodnight prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake. Pray the Lord my soul to take. She pulled the blanket over her precious little girl, kissed her on the forehead, and left the room, closing the door behind her. The next day, John Bonet would be found dead, with a cord wrapped around her neck, in the cold, dark basement. The little girl's death would lead to a countrywide media frenzy. A botched police investigation, a cult following... Of at home investigators and crime junkies, and an unexplainable mystery that still haunts the country today. Little John Bonet Patricia Ramsey was born on August 6th, 1990, in Atlanta, Georgia. Her first name was a combination of her father's first and middle names. Her middle name was her mother's name. She was three years younger than her brother, Burke, and had two adult half-siblings from her father's previous marriage. Her parents were Patsy and John Ramsey. John was the president of a computer system company, Access Graphics, which was a subsidiary to Lockheed Martin. When John Benet was one years old, the family moved to Boulder, Colorado. A city that the Ramses believed would be a safe place to raise their two youngest children. John Bonet was born into a life of privilege and luxury. Her family owned a second home, a private jet, and a boat. Their wealthy lifestyle went hand in hand with a love for attention and praise. Patsy herself was a seasoned beauty queen who loved the glamour and glitz of pageantry. She was crowned Miss West Virginia in her early adulthood, a title that she wore with great pride. It was while attending a Miss West Virginia beauty pageant reunion that young John Bonet developed an interest in pageantry herself. The child was three and a half years old when she watched her mom walk across the stage at the reunion. According to Patsy, John Bonet was just enamored with it. She'd say, Mommy, when can I do that? I wanna do something like that. And so, the little girl with her bright blue eyes and angelic blonde curls was catapulted into the world of glittery dresses and puffed up hair, photo shoots, and talent competitions. John JonBenet entered the child beauty pageant circuit with vigor, trained by her beauty queen mother she could freeze into a single pose for minutes at a time, which was shockingly impressive for a preschooler. She owned every stage she walked on, smiling at the judges with rosy red cheeks and perfect teeth. Her sweet, innocent face, masked by thick mascara, blush, lipstick, and spray tans. By the time she was six years old, John Binet had won two dozen trophies. Still, Life was not perfect for the Ramses. Tragedy seemed to follow the young family around. In 1992, John's oldest daughter, 22-year-old Beth, was killed in a car accident. Just two years later, Patsy was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. The family was under a great deal of stress, learning to balance their grief for Beth and the fear for Patsy's health with raising two young children. On the outside though, the family seemed to be coping just fine. John Bonet was performing more than ever. She had her final performance at a Denver shopping mall just three days before her death. It seemed that the family always had a performance to attend, a meeting to get to. Their schedule was packed. They flew around the country in their private jet, celebrated John's success as a businessman, and hosted enormous parties in their Boulder home. One such party took place just four days before John Bonet's murder. John's company had just reached $1 billion in sales. The family threw a huge party to celebrate. That party was followed by a children's Christmas party on December 23rd, where John Bonet met Santa Claus and made gingerbread houses. John remembered that she and one of her little friends were in charge of hanging up the coats and that kind of thing. It was all the fun for the holidays between the parties, friends and family were in and out of the house to visit. Patsy later told reporters, we had my guess is probably 1500 to 2000 people in our home in two days, but in retrospect, I wonder if it was an open invitation for murder. You know, if someone's trying to scope out your house as John Bonet's pageant fame grew, It's quite possible that obsessed pedophiles were stalking her. Could one of them enter her house at the Christmas party? Snooped around? Come up with a plan? At the time, after John's company made a billion in sales, the accomplishment was published in the newspaper just four days before John Benet's death. John had been nervous about making his profits public, but was also deeply proud of his company's accomplishment. He told reporters, you know i just had this instinct that you don't want that in the paper and then i kind of overrode my instinct and let that happen and then in retrospect i wondered well could that have been the trigger event for a crazy person it was a busy few days leading up to christmas and after christmas the family planned to visit john's older son in michigan christmas day itself would be the one quiet calm day on their schedule for a while they couldn't wait on christmas morning on christmas morning patsy told a reporter i can remember vividly burke and john Bonet running up to our bed to get us up and i remember them running just as excited as they could be go downstairs and see what santa brought it was a cheerful christmas john bonnet and burke sat under the tree and unwrapped presents smiles glued to their faces. Patsy photographed her happy children. John Bonet got a brand new bike. She couldn't wait to ride it. In nineteen ninety eight, Burke reminisced about the morning with Detective Dan Schuler. He told the detective, I just remember John Bet falling on the bike and sitting on it. That night, the family planned to visit some friends for Christmas dinner. John recalled that John Bonet had gotten a bicycle for Christmas, and we were going to go out to dinner at a friend's house. John Bonet was on her bike and wanted me to take her around the block. I said, No, no, we don't have time. We'll do that later. Daddy, please. And I can remember that. And that kind of hurts because we didn't do that. Instead, the family headed to the dinner. They were there until about 9 p.m. When they headed back home, Needing to get to bed early to be well rested for their flight to Michigan the next morning, Patsy remembered. By the time we got home, John Bonet had fallen asleep in the back seat. John carried his daughter from the car to her bedroom. He recalled, "I would take her shoes off, and Patsy would come in and get her ready for bed." Patsy and John Bonet said their prayers. She tucked her daughter in. In the meantime john was downstairs with burke according to john burke was downstairs trying to put together a model of something he had gotten for christmas and i couldn't get him to bed because we were going to get up early the next morning and leave to go to michigan so i helped him put it together so i could get him into bed so he went to bed and patsy and i went to bed the house was quiet blanketed in sleep then At 2am, a a neighbor heard a scream coming from the basement. No one in the house seemed to hear it. On December 26th, 1996, Patsy Ramsey woke up early to get ready for the 7am flight to Michigan. At 5.30am, she headed to the laundry room to get some clothes from the dryer. Patsy told a reporter that I was fussing around the laundry room with some clothes. I glanced at John JonBenet's bedroom and her door was closed. I started downstairs. There were these pieces of paper lying on one of the rugs of the stairs. I started reading the first couple of lines. Somewhere it said, we have your daughter. It clicked. Your daughter? And I just bounded back up the stairs and threw her door open. And she was not in her bed. The note that Patsy had found was a long frenzied ransom ransom note that had been left on their main stairwell. Bizarrely, it was written on the family's own stationery, indicating that it had been pinned within the home. The note read as follows, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We do respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. And if you want to see her in 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate attaché to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money, and hence an earlier delivery pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be ne- denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you. So, I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way tampered with, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement, countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter. If you try to outsmart us, follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities Please, don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good Southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory, S, B, T, C. It is highly, highly unusual for a ransom note to be so lengthy and detailed. This was immediately suspicious to the police, who believed that only John Benet's own family would have the time to write a note of that length inside of the house. After discovering the note and finding John Benet's room empty, Patsy panicked. I just remember screaming to John. He was still upstairs dressing. According to John, I knew something was very wrong. I came downstairs and she had the note and I read it quickly, trying to take everything in and I screamed. Patsy added in the same interview, you don't know what to do. I mean, what do you do? You can't just think fast enough. As for Burke, he remained in bed, tucked in the safety of his covers. Hiding from the strange panic he heard outside his bedroom door, he told Detective Schuler, I just remember my mom rushing into my room, putting the lights on, looking around, and rushing out. The detective asked, Burke, was your mom upset? Burke answered, yes. Had you ever seen her like that before? No. Did it scare you? Yes. What did you do then? I just lay in the bed with my eyes closed and like sort of thinking what might have happened to them. Did you hear your mom and dad talk? I just heard mom going psycho. Going psycho? Did you go down and see what's going on? No, I just stayed in bed. In the meantime, Patsy called the police. John explained that we had no choice. I mean, I would have gone mad sitting there hoping someone would call. Patsy sounds panicked and horrified in the police call. 911 emergency. What's this going on by five fifteenth street? What's going on there, ma'am? We have a kidnapping. All right, please explain to me what's going on, okay? There we have a there's a note left and our daughter's gone. A note was left and your daughter is yes. gone. Yeah. How old is your daughter? I'm six years old. She's gone. Six years old. How long ago was it? I don't know. I just it on the note. And my daughter's is it say who took her? What? Is it say the chimney? I don't know. It's, there's, a, there's a ransom note here. It's a ransom note? It says S-B-T-C. Victory. Please. Okay, what's your name? Are you Kathy Ramsey and the mother? Oh my God! Please, I'm okay. I'm sending an officer over. Okay, please. Do you know how long she's been gone? No, I don't. Please, we just got out and she's not here. Oh my God! Please. Okay. This well, I am, honey. Please take a deep breath. Please. With me, okay? Sorry, hurry, hurry, hurry! Kathy, 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 A patrol car arrived within seven minutes of the harrowing 911 call. The police noticed immediately that there were no fresh footprints in the snow and that there were no signs of forced entry. They began to suspect the parents right away. According to Linda, the investigator who arrived on the scene that morning, John Ramsey seemed cordial. Patsy, on the other hand, was hysterical still police wondered if she might have been faking it they told reporters that she had covered her face with her hands to cry she was peering at the officers through splayed fingers held over her eyes in an awkward attempt to conceal that she was spying on them further the couple made no attempt to console each other the police tapped the family's phone And John left to get the ransom by 730. He had the money and Burke was taken to a friend's house. John in the meantime was acting unusually calm for a father in his nightmarish position. He told reporters, one of the emotions, I guess I was going through in my mind was think, okay, what can we do? How can we make this right because i felt like we had a chance when beth was killed i had no chance to change that and there was nothing that i could do about it she was already gone i couldn't go to her bedside with john benet we could make this turn out right i did believe it i did believe it was going to turn out all right John JonBenet was a strong kid. She was tough. She was smart. The police prepared John with a script to follow. If the person who left the ransom note called the house, they waited anxiously for the call, but it never came. At the same time, concerned family and friends were weaving in and out of the house. One friend even cleaned the kitchen. The crime scene was completely destroyed by large groups of people gathered throughout the house. When no one called, the friends and family decided to split up and search the house again. The police had already searched it, but hadn't found any sign of the missing little girl. They didn't realize that there was a room they had forgot to check. They had been in the basement, but failed to open a single door at the end of the large room. A door that would have led them straight to John Benet, dead beneath a white blanket, her head bashed in, a cord around her neck, duct tape on her mouth, and markings on her cheek and neck. John went himself to check the basement. He recalled that. As I was going through the basement, I opened the door to a room and I just knew immediately that I had found her because there was a white blanket and her eyes were closed. I figured the worst, but yet I found her. Even though there's this rush of, thank God I found her, she's safe again. I was fearful that she wasn't okay. Panic took over and I just couldn't say anything. I screamed to try to attract attention and carried her upstairs. Patsy heard his scream from upstairs. She knew immediately that the worst had happened. John carried the little girl's body up the basement steps instead of leaving it at the scene of the crime. The house was filled with police, investigators, friends, and family watched him as he marched up the stairs with his daughter's body dangling limp in his arms investigator linda told abc i see john ramsey carrying john Bonet up the last three steps from the basement and my mind exploded and everything i had noted that morning that stuck out instantly made sense as we looked at each other I remember tucking my gun right next to me and consciously counting out the, the 18 bullets. The reporter inquired, you were afraid because you thought the killer was still in the house. Deadpan. Linda replied, I knew it. Little John Bonet had been garroted and bashed in the head. Her body was taken to the examiner's for an autopsy. In the meantime, John and Patsy Ramsey hired an attorney within a day of their daughter's death. Many were suspicious of this decision, wondering why any innocent person would possibly even think to hire an attorney right away. Why weren't they focused on their grief on finding their daughter's killer? Perhaps even more strange, the family flew to Atlanta almost right away. Leaving the city for John Binet's funeral, why did they leave? Why didn't they stay and wait for more evidence, more answers? What the Ramsays did not realize that first tragic night, as they hired a lawyer and tried to wrap their brains around what may have happened, was that they were about to be the center of a media firestorm. Paula Woodward author of we have your daughter explains it's not unusual for police officers to utilize media and media to utilize police officers but this case was far different we find out later that the leak started almost immediately the very morning after john benet's body was found in the family's basement Colorado Rocky Mountain News reported, it's not adding up. The media was already insinuating that the parents were involved in John Bonet's death. In the meantime, John Bonet's autopsy came back, and it seemed to strengthen the case against mom and dad Ramsey. The autopsy found that John Bonet had died from asphyxiation caused by. Garrotting as well as bludgeoning to the head the autopsy also revealed that john Bonet had been sexually assaulted a broken piece of one of ramsey's own paintbrushes had been used to make the garrote along with a nylon cord and the paintbrush had also been inserted into the child's vagina the report also showed that John Bonet had suffered previous inflammation of her vagina, indicating that she had been sexually abused before the murder. Paget videos of the young starlet played on a loop on the news around the country, as reporters insinuated that John Bonet's parents had been sexualizing the young girl since she was a toddler. Police leaked that they had reason to believe her parents had been sexually abusive toward her and that they were searching the Ramsey house for child pornography. Overnight, John Bonet was on the cover of magazines on television in the newspaper. The mainstream media couldn't get enough of her story or of accusing her grieving parents of foul play at the time. John wrote in his diary, we keep our curtains closed, doors and windows locked. Going anywhere is a majorly organized and planned operation. We have people come to the door claiming they have information that could be helpful to the case. They are tabloid reporters. Life is difficult to go on with. Burden is almost too heavy. The day after John Binet's funeral, John and Patsy gave an interview to reporters from Atlanta. Patsy warned Boulder, there is a killer on the loose. I don't know who it is. I don't know if it's a he or a she, but if I were a resident of Boulder, I would tell my friends to keep their babies close to you. There's someone out there. If anything, the interview made the police and the media even more suspicious. The mayor of Boulder responded to the interview with a press release in which she told her concerned citizen, people of Boulder have no need to fear that there is somebody wandering the streets of Boulder, as has been portrayed by some people looking for children to attack. John and Patsy Ramsey were left aghast. How certain, how certain did the police and even the city have to be that the parents were murderers if they were willing to say there wasn't a killer on the loose. After the mayor's controversial press conference, the media and the police began to work even more closely together. The police leaked that they noticed no footprints in the snow outside the Ramsey house, that they had noticed inappropriate behavior from Patsy and John the body, the day the body was discovered. The ransom note was tested, and while the handwriting didn't match Burke's or John's, Patsy's was inconclusive. Americans consumed every article, every news story, every tabloid, obsessed with this little pageant queen murdered on Christmas by her own mom and dad. D.A. Alex Hunter told reporters, I want to say something to the person or persons who took this baby from us. The list of suspects narrow. Soon there will be no one on this list but you. They acted as though they had already solved the case, even though they had no evidence to go off of. It turned out that their leaks were not even true. There was no pornography found in the house, there wasn't even snow in the yard at all. There was no way for footprints to be made in the first place. According to Paula Woodward, the leaks were found out later, but didn't know then they were wrong. I don't know what the rationale was, but one might suspect that it was to get one or the other to turn against each other. The police were desperate to prove that the parents did it, but they were having a hard time finding any proof. The duct tape found on John Binet's mouth matched no duct tape found in the house. There was no nylon cord to match the one tied around her neck. There was no murder weapon. The only possible murder weapon in that area of the house was a baseball bat, which they tested and found nothing of concern. The paintbrush belonged to Patsy, yes, but it was also kept in a box of paintbrushes in the very room that John Bene was murdered. So chances are the culprit had just grabbed it and used it on a whim. Stuck at a standstill, Boulder hired Colorado Springs hero detective Lou Smith to help with the case. Smith had investigated over 200 murder cases and solved 90% of them. He was the real deal. When Smith drove from Colorado Springs to Boulder to work on the case, he thought he would be in and out. In an interview in 2001, Smith told reporters, it seemed as though the parents were probably involved in it. And from what I had seen in the papers and heard on the television, there had been snow all around the house. The ransom note was supposedly inside the house. I thought this would be a fairly easy case. I thought it would be a slam dunk. I remember joking with my daughter and saying, you know, if someone did come into the house, it must have been Santa Claus coming down the chimney. When Smith arrived on the scene, however, he was shocked at what he found. It wasn't going to be an easy case after all. Smith sorted through the crime scene photos and right away he noticed something was wrong. First of all, it was very clear in every photo that friends and family in and out of the house that day had tampered with the crime scene. Evidence would be hard to obtain. Further, and most shockingly, one picture showed a wide open window in the basement right near where John Bonet's body was found. There was even a dark mark on the wall, leading from the open window to the floor, as if shoes or jeans had scuffed it. Smith told reporters, When I first seen that photograph, I thought, uh uh-oh, looks like someone could have gotten in there. Right away, the Boulder police, who were determined to prove that the parents were responsible, fought this new evidence. They explained, that the only way into that window was through a grate in the ground in the side yard, and that only a midget could fit through the gate. Smith, in turn, went to the crime scene himself to prove that theory wrong. He brought a camera crew with him before he began. He told the camera, well, I'm not a midget, and I'll show you how it's done. Hi, I'm Jules from Riddle Me That True Crime. I have a PhD in transpersonal counseling and am obsessed with all things crime and psychology. I focus on unsolved cases. I typically cover one case over a month, like I recently did with the case of Robert Wan. I had a microbiologist and forensics expert, as well as a criminologist, analyze the evidence, and they came to very different conclusions. One believed Robert was murdered by one or all three of the men present in the home, and the other believed it was an outside intruder. 2020 has been a strange year. If you're looking for a deep dive into some of your favorite unsolved cases with the assistance of experts, then look no further. Check out Riddle Me That True Crime wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back to another episode of the Jury Room Podcast. I appreciate you guys coming along on this journey with me. Uh, I hope you're enjoying the episodes thus far. Uh, don't forget to listen to the Peter Blexley Interview that I posted last week—that was a fantastic interview—and I'm very thankful for Peter for coming on. Uh, don't forget to enter for a chance at his book. Uh, I will include a link below. Uh, we're gonna sit down again and and really focus in on his book, uh, and that link will be a chance for you to enter. So make sure you listen to that. Um, I've got some stuff in the works that I'm really excited about. Um, I got a collaboration episode I'm gonna be releasing here on Wednesday. So make sure you listen. I got a couple of special guests. you guys won't won't want to miss this one. So, but I have some stuff coming down the pipeline that I'm really excited about. Uh, we're gonna cover an ancient an ancient mystery here in the next episode. So I hope you guys tune in for that. Um, I've got I've got quite a bit of stuff coming up, so stay tuned. Thank you. Uh, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone around the world who's been listening. I've got countries that I have never even heard of that I've had to Google. So if you're out there and you're still listening, I appreciate it. And even if you're not listening, I still appreciate you. But, you know, thanks for taking the time to just include, you know, the Jury Room podcast in your podcast playlist. And uh, don't forget, make sure you go leave a review on iTunes Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, they all have a way that you can leave a review, tell me if I'm doing good, tell me if I'm doing bad, Uh, don't forget I leave um, episode feedback links below, it's a Google document, and it's just, you know, if you don't want to put it out there in the public realm, you can send it to me directly, tell me I'm bad, tell me I'm good, Tell me what I can do to change it. I mean, whatever. I'll definitely, you know, do my best. It, it really helps the smaller podcasts to keep going and and strive to bring, you know, a better show for you guys. So make sure you do that. Um, as always, I have a general case suggestion file and a missing person case, you know, fill those out. Um, I've got a few general case suggestions that I'm going to be looking into And hopefully putting out an episode here after the first of the year on those. So I'm really excited about those. So thank you to whoever has suggested any cases. Uh, Make sure the promos that you hear from other podcasts here, make sure you go and, and check them out. Give them a listen, give them a like or review, whatever the case is. You know, There's a lot of creators out there that deserve the whole world who put a lot into their shows. So... You know, make sure you show them some love and and just some appreciate them. You never know what tomorrow is going to bring. So today's missing person case comes from my home state, Arizona. Hopefully we can bring some answers. Uh, today's missing persons is Alicia Christian Navarro. She's been missing since September 15th, 2019. She's missing from Glendale, Arizona. She's female, Hispanic. Her date of birth is September 20th, 2004. She was 14 years old at her time of disappearance. She was 4'5 and weighed 95 pounds. She was wearing a white sweatshirt, a whitewashed denim overall skirt, and black and white Van sneakers. She was diagnosed with autism at the age of 12. She has severe anxiety and was receiving therapy at her time of disappearance. She needs medication, which she doesn't have with her. Her distinguishing characteristics. She's a Hispanic female, brown hair, brown eyes. Elisa has braces on her teeth and a scar on her left knuckle. Because of her short stature, she looks much younger than her age. Alicia was last seen in Glendale, Arizona on September 15th, 2019 at 1 a.m. She came downstairs for a glass of water and asked her mother why she was still awake. Her mother didn't think too much of this and went to sleep. When her mother woke up at 7 a.m., the back door was open. Chairs were placed against a brick wall in the backyard and there were shoe prints matching Elisa's sneakers. It appeared she had used the chairs to climb over the wall. Sometime during the night, Alicia had left her home in the vicinity of 45th Avenue and Rose Lane on foot. She took a small black backpack, her silver iPhone 6 cell cell phone, and her silver Apple Mac computer, but didn't take the chargers. She left behind the laptop she used for school and the desktop computer she used for games. Her mother believes that she left to meet someone she'd been talking to online. She left a note saying, I ran away. I will be back, I swear. I'm sorry, Alicia. She never returned and has never been heard from again. The police stated that Alicia is very tech-savvy and took her phone and computer in an attempt to make it harder to find her. Prior to her disappearance, she hadn't been fighting with her family or indicated that she was unhappy. Alicia Alicia was a student at Boragod Catholic High School at the time of her disappearance. According to her mother, due to her autism, Alicia liked strict routine with no deviations from her schedule and didn't like to go out in public. She was prone to emotional meltdowns and needed help with socializing. Her mother believes she never intended to be gone this long and is being held against her will. Her case remains unsolved. If you have any information, please reach out to the Glendale Police Department at 623 930 three zero zero zero. That's six two three nine three zero three zero zero zero. If you guys have any information on Alicia Navarro's case, please please reach out to the police department. Hopefully we can bring some answers to our family. I only have a couple of stories for you guys today. So I figured I'd do a follow-up that I found and I'm super, uh, I mean, it's still a fucked up situation, but uh, the headline reads, Tyson fires managers following allegations of COVID-19 betting pool. Good. Thank God. They 100% got what they deserved. There is no reason that they should be betting on human lives. It's fucked up. And it's fucked up that they're voting on this, or betting on this disease. So, I feel like they got what they deserved, probably a little bit more. But, I mean, the reality of it is karma's going to smack them in the fucking face, because that's how karma works. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I was a huge Friday fan when I was growing up. You ain't got a job, you ain't got shit to do. Uh, So this next headline's a little sad. Um... Actor Tiny Thomas Tiny Lister Jr. Friday actor dead at 62 after apparently experiencing COVID-19 symptoms. So that's sad. Um, <clears throat> I know I was just watching Little Nicky the other day, and he's hilarious in that. And so, yep, poor guy. So rest in peace to to Debo or whatever character you've known him as. <clears throat> He will definitely be missed. He definitely brought that that strange villain-type character. So thanks for your time in the middle. Don't forget, go leave a review on iTunes anywhere you can. Just uh, send me your honest feedback and let me know how I'm doing. Uh, there will be links below. Just take the time out. Five seconds, it really helps. And I appreciate it. So, with that being said, we'll get you back to John Benet Ramsey. Let's talk about stress, baby. Let's talk about all the times where I wanted to die. Hello, and welcome to Stress, Depression, and Anxiety, a podcast where we'll explore all those crushing, debilitating feelings, all the times where I've felt like, is this a heart attack or just an anxiety attack? And... Why can't I get out of bed? Why do I keep crying? Is this depression? Do I need Prozac? If that sounds appealing to you, then I think you're part of my tribe. And all that means is that you're not alone out there. Thank God. So come on, come join the community, listen to all the recent episodes, come interact, come join the fun. With quite a bit of ease, he opened the grate, slipped beneath it and slid through the open window he had a camera tape the whole thing once in the basement he addressed the camera it really wasn't that difficult coming in that window after carefully examining photos taken of the grate on the original day of the investigation Smith found that debris had been gathered which proved that the grate had been moved recently further the ground beneath the grate was clearly disturbed still the police argued that there was an intact spider web on the grate which proved it could not possibly have been lifted smith still stuck to his theory another cause of alarm for smith was a series of marks found on john benet's neck and face the distance apart between the marks showed that the marks were consistent with a stun gun wound, Smith explained. Suddenly, it became apparent that the marks themselves, both on the back and face, were the same distance apart. It was a stun gun. He had a forensic team test the stun guns on pigs, and found that the marks made on the pigs were identical to those on John Bonet. Dr. Michael Dorbson, chief medical examiner in El Paso, Colorado, examined the stun gun evidence in 2001. He concluded with confidence, with my experiments and all the works that have been done, I feel I can testify to a reasonable degree of medical certainty that these are stun gun injuries. This was amazing evidence to point towards an intruder. After all, why would Patsy and John ever need to use a stun gun on their own daughter? She would have followed her parents to the basement without a fight. Finally, there was the DNA evidence. It was revealed that after John Bonet was killed, a spot of blood was found on her underwear. It was determined that the blood came from an unknown male. Matching DNA was found on her pants as well. The police had known this information within days of her murder, but took seven months to inform the DA. Instead, they fabricated a theory of their own. The police believed and told the media that John Binet had been killed from the bash to her head. The garroting, sexual assault and ransom note they theorized was all a cover-up so that they could cry intruder. Boulder police investigator Jeff Shapiro said that there is an understanding in the department that this was an accidental death. This was the result of child abuse that got out of control and that somehow John JonBenet was struck across the head or her head was smacked into something and it cracked her skull and the sexual assault and asphyxiation was part of a cover-up to make it look like the intruder had broken in and killed John Binet. They thought that maybe Patsy hit her daughter in the head because she wet the bed. They told the press that the most likely scenario is that John Benet went to her parents' bed wet and weeping. Her frazzled mom completely lost it and battered her. That's where the attack began. When asked to explain the DNA found on her underwear, the police agreed that it was probably left from the manufacturer, but couldn't explain why it was on her pants and underwear, which were not made by the same company. Smith could not disagree more. He responded to this claim by stating, There's very strong evidence that John Binet was killed in this part of the basement, he explained contradicting the theory that she was killed in her parents' bedroom. He continues, One of the reasons for that is that there was a paint tray right there, and in this paint tray was a paint brush that was used to make the garrotte. The bristle portion was still in the tray. Right next to the paint tray is a very small sliver of wood that came off the broken brush. The garrotte was made from the middle portion of the paintbrush, the handle. Her hair was actually entwined right in the wrappings of the grotte. As the killer made it on the back of her neck, he made a noose on the other end of the grotte. Then this noose was pulled very tightly against the neck of John Binet, almost like a control device almost like you were controlling a pet or a dog. The killer has a fantasy in his mind with what he wants to do with this garage. This is not a simple little blow to the head followed by a massive staging. This is brutal first-degree murder. You can see the amount of force that was exerted on the garage. To further prove Smith's point, there were little moon shaped markings found right above and below the cord on the front of John Benet's neck. There was fingernail markings indicating that John Benet was alive and fighting for her life. Trying to pull the garat from her neck while she was being strangled, she could not have died from the head blow first. The Boulder police were not thrilled with Smith's findings. They made attempts to keep evidence from Smith. The DA's office, who had hired Smith and believed his findings to be true, attempted to take over the investigation completely. In response, Mayor Roy Rumor accused the DA's office of protecting the Ramseys and asserted that their refusal to charge them with murder of their daughter was biased. A new special prosecutor was appointed and all detectives and investigators were removed. It was decided that the police would find a way to charge the Ramseys. Smith himself was not removed by the new prosecutor, but he resigned anyways, lamenting that, I could not in good conscience be part of the prosecution of an innocent person. A grand jury was established and voted to indict the parents. The case appeared to be over. That is, until DA Alex Hunter shocked everyone. In spite of the grand jury's decision, Alex Hunter did not go through with prosecuting them, feeling there was not enough evidence to do so in good conscience. In 2000, four years after John JonBenet's murder, Mary Lacey became the new district attorney. She rehired Lou Smith, but could only afford his services one day a week. Smith convinced Mary to test the DNA found on John Binet's underwear again, using the latest technology that was not around when she had been murdered. That testing had led to Patsy and John's official exoneration in 2008. Unfortunately, Patsy died of ovarian cancer in 2006 and never got to see her name cleared. Around the time of Smith's rehiring, the media started circulating another theory. That Burke had killed his sister. That Burke had hit his sister in the head out of jealousy for the fame and attention the pageant life had granted her. And that the parents staged everything else to protect him. This is an unlikely theory, although it's still believed by many today. Here is the official transcript from Burke's interview with Detective Patterson an hour after John Bonet's body was found. Burke did not yet know his sister was dead. How about your sister? Does she ever argue with anybody? Um, sometimes me. Sometimes you? What would you fight with your sister about? about not wanting her to play video games. You don't like to share with her? I cause I don't like the music. It's like da 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 da. Did you fight with your sister yesterday about video games? Um, no. Where do you and your sister go in the house? What parts of the house do you go to? Just all around the first floor and all around the second floor. The detective concluded that the day there was no reason whatsoever to suspect John Benet's older brother. He explained, based on the interview I had with Burke, it appeared to me that he had no idea his sister was dead. He appeared to be very outgoing, very forward with me, and he appeared to be completely honest. I got no indication that he was holding anything back that he had witnessed anything. It's hard to believe that he was just a really good liar for a nine-year-old. When he found out a short while later that his sister died, he broke down into a shocked sob. There was no evidence to show that the scrawny little boy had anything to do with it. Still, the police had one more reason to believe the parents were worth being suspicious. The history of vaginal inflammation found during the autopsy. Didn't that prove she had suffered abuse before her death? Not necessarily. John Binet had gone to the doctor months before her death with symptoms of vaginitis, which is a common ailment of young girls. According to John Binet's pediatrician, Dr. Francisco, the time that I was her pediatrician, I saw absolutely no signs of sexual abuse. I had no suspicions of it. I always think about sexual abuse with any child, boy or girl, who comes through this practice because it is such a terribly destructive thing. And I think about it in each case, and if I see evidence, then I act on it. In John Bonet's case, I saw absolutely no evidence. Dr. Leon Kelly, the chief medical examiner who studied John Bonet's case extensively, and is an expert on physical evidence of child abuse Further, this claim explaining the examiner finds no evidence of healing of prior injuries no evidence of scarring no evidence of other changes or findings which forensic pathologists look to indicate prior sexual abuse much has been made about a few lines of information on the autopsy report where the pathologist describes some chronic inflammation. Some have extrapolated to me that, well, we've got chronic injury, therefore we have chronic sexual abuse. Well, that's not what those very few lines of text mean. Vaginitis, which is a very nonspecific term for inflammation, is very common in children and can be due to things as simple as irritation from soap, or poor wiping. It's so common, it's essentially a normal finding. And to extrapolate someone else's guilt as far as inflicting sexual abuse, that's not based in science. One Boulder police officer, in response, said that she felt in her heart that sexual abuse had occurred within the family. The Boulder police finally sought court permission to permanently erase all of Smith's findings. Smith went to court and was able to keep his evidence. It seems that with the Boulder police department's adamant refusal to explore this case beyond the parents' guilt, it will likely never be solved. Criminologist, Dr. Robert Winston explained that what you see across the U.S. in high profile cases, there's such pressure on investigators to find that suspect, identify that suspect, when indeed they're just starting their investigation. And what happens is that someone of an authority position, when they discuss this case together, one of them comes up with the idea. Well, I think it was so-and-so that did it even though the evidence doesn't point there and then boom, everyone kind of agrees with that authority position. And then they only look at evidence that points to the potential suspect and other evidence, which clearly is important to this case is all of a sudden discarded. Lou Smith never stopped fighting that biased attitude towards the case. He passed away in 2010, still trying to find the answers. Smith's theory is that while the Ramseys were at the Christmas dinner, an intruder broke into the house armed with his neat nylon cord, stun gun and duct tape. He wrote the ransom note in the house for a very specific reason. If he was caught breaking into the house with a ransom note on hand, he'd be charged with attempted kidnapping. Without that note, he would just be charged with attempted robbery. Once in the house, the intruder waited for about three to four hours for the family to get home. When they did, he waited for them to fall asleep before going upstairs to John Binet's room. Who he shoots with a stun gun, then he carries the unconscious little girl downstairs, which there is evidence of, because some tinsel from the stairwell was found in her hair and leaves the note on the steps on his way down. In the basement, he used the garage he brought and the paintbrush he found to control and abuse her. She wakes up and screams, so he hits her on the head, likely with the stun gun, before panicking and running from the house, which was never his intention. Whoever did this may have been someone out to get John or a pedophile obsessed with John Bonet. Detectives actually tested this theory, and that found while a neighbor could have heard John Bonet scream from the basement, her parents three stories above would not have heard her. Over the years, an obsession with this case caused by the media firestorm led to a number of wild conspiracy theories of what might have happened. One such theory is that John Bonet was the victim of satanic ritual abuse. These stories believe that Patsy thought her daughter was evil, so she killed her as punishment. Another theory is that Santa Claus theory. This one may have held some merit, except for that evidence proved Santa's innocent. On the day of the children's Christmas party, two days before John Benet's murder, Santa was played by a former journalist, Bill McReynolds. Supposedly, McReynolds handed John Binet a card that day which read, You will receive a special gift after Christmas. Further, McReynolds' own daughter had been abducted 22 years to the day before John Binet's death. His wife had even written a play about a girl who had been assaulted and murdered in her basement. Plus, SBTC, the signature left on the ransom note. Could be interpreted as south on Broadway towards Cashman. To get from the McReynolds residence to the Ramses, you'd have to go south on Broadway towards Cashman. Still, the McReynolds were cleared with an alibi. It is unlikely that we will ever know what really happened that Christmas night in 1996. There is still so much that we don't know. Lead jury investigator Michael Kane told reporters. There remains dozens of secrets, absolutely dozens, and a lot of what the public thinks simply is not fact. Well, thank you for taking the time to listen to this whole episode. Uh, If you have... If you want to debate this case or, you know, give me your thoughts on it, I'd love to hear it. Um, I'm definitely torn, you know one person that I talked to about it definitely said it best. There's just so much in so many different angles that you literally could justify every single one of them. So I don't quite know how I feel. I mean, I definitely don't. I don't know. It's a hard case to be set in one way. So, But I'd love to hear your thoughts on this case and, you know, where you think... What you think happened that faithful night to to little John Bonet? So, uh, you can get in touch with me. You know, let me know what you think. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been the jury room. That was the story of John Benet Ramsey. Now, join me in a moment of silence. Now don't forget to go and leave a review. Like, let me know where you're listening from. I'm glad that my my platform is growing, and, and that's with your guys' help. So I appreciate it, and I, I truly do appreciate each and every one of you. Just make sure you just send me some feedback. Let me know how I'm doing. Other than that, I hope you guys have a good holidays, and I'll see you on the next episode.